So I'm sure I speak on behalf of the community and I welcome Samanera Atanyu to the community and I'd like to take this opportunity to offer a short reflection it doesn't seem right to let the occasion pass without offering something by way of encouragement this significant decision that Samanera Atanyu has made after the years of preparation and as I was saying earlier I have confidence that that he uh, he knows what he's getting himself in for and to, to some degree at least however well prepared we might be and however inspiring our aspirations might be there still can be times in this training where we lose perspective and sometimes it's because there's a, a retreat period and there's no structure and you end up becoming disoriented because there's just too much inner activity going on and at other times it's maybe because there's a festival happening and crowds of visitors and and not enough space and there's too much outer activity going on and become disoriented and lose perspective and so in situations like that it's good if we have already prepared ourselves with some clear understanding about what it is that we're doing here what are we here for what are we in this Buddhist monastery on Harnham Hill in Northumberland why are we doing this and what the world thinks we're up to is not much use quite frankly and most people out there don't have a clue what we're doing probably think we're bowing down to graven images or, or uh, performing magic rituals or numbing ourselves out in meditation or something they don't appreciate um, what this training is about and so it's very important that we know the purpose to this and so as you were saying earlier one of the main emphasis uh, on this training needs to be on remembering that this deluded sense of self that gets us into so much trouble is not an obligation there's something we can do about it and transforming this experience of deluded selfhood uh, with its insistence on getting my own way all the time expressing my views and my opinions that this experience is a limited state of being the Buddha realized freedom from this limited state of being and so the Buddha's teachings and the instructions that he gave and the techniques that he provided are ways of helping us, guiding us, directing us uh, to freedom from the deluded sense of self and having that concept that this is work to be done and when if we find ourselves in a situation where we feel like I don't want to be doing this just because the workmaster asked us to take on a particular duty and, and we don't feel that it's fair or we don't want to do it and what is that reaction? Is it a reasonable reaction? Is the workmaster really misjudging the situation and, and giving us an unsuitable job or is it just a habit of I don't want to do it because I don't like it? 
if it's the former, well then you can have a discussion about it. If it's the latter, well then that's the practice. That's what we need to be looking at. And that's what we need to be ready for to to register that, not not just in our heads and start thinking about the Buddha's teachings on anatta and say, oh, well, there's no self. And no, well, sure, it feels like there's a self right now, and I'm being told to do something I don't want to do. What is this self? What is this self? This deluded self is not an obligation. This state of being is a limited state of being that we have this opportunity, we have this invitation to train so as to transform this. And and the tools that, again, you've heard me talk about many times before, the tools in your spiritual toolkit are skills that we develop. And primarily, uh, the first one that we all know about and spoken about many times before is that is integrity. Learning to become skilled at cultivating integrity. Integrity is like the foundation. You look at the Buddha image and integrity is like the lotus that the Buddha is sitting on. You see Buddha images, the Buddha is always sitting on the lotus. The lotus is that, that which is beautiful grows up out of the swamp. It's the, it's the heart, the mind that is committed to integrity. And the aspiration for liberation needs to have that foundation. Or, for instance, if we're building a house, we might have great ideas about that very subtle shade of white that we're going to paint the place when it's finished and, and, and arrange the furniture in such and such a way. However, the foundations need to be in place. Without the foundations being in place, well, as we all know, we're not secure. We don't have a secure abiding. So getting the foundations right and in terms of our own heart and mind and getting the foundations right, this is establishing a sense of safety. If we don't have a commitment to integrity, then the consequences we don't feel safe. And maybe you've come across that, that incident in the scriptures where the Buddha and Abhinavananda are having a conversation and, and Abhinavananda asked the Buddha the point of, of Sila and the, the Buddha says, freedom from remorse. And freedom from remorse is the direct consequence of a life committed to integrity. Feeling safe is the direct consequence of a life committed to integrity. So integrity is one of the first, is the primary tools that we, in our toolkit, that we need to be developing, need to be becoming skilled in. Second one, a disciplined attention. As summoners, we don't have money. We do have attention. Attention is our currency. We pay attention. I mean, we pay attention to our activity of body and speech so that we don't compromise the precepts and we pay attention to the experience of suffering and we do, if we don't pay attention to the experience of suffering then it's very easy to start assuming that somebody else is to blame for our suffering or something that happened in the past is responsible for our suffering the past is dead the past is gone maybe a memory of the past might be triggering the suffering but actually the suffering is something that's happening right here and now. All sorts of awful things happened to the Buddha in his life. However, the Buddha had no suffering. Why did the Buddha not have any suffering? Because he understood the reality of suffering. The Buddha was able to pay attention to the experience of suffering to the point where he saw what's actually taking place. The truth, the Dhamma of suffering is that it's all caused by the contraction of the heart or or the process of clinging, resistance to reality is something we're doing. 
Of course, there's no escaping from the experience of pain. The Buddha had pain. However, he did say there's an escape from suffering. We don't have to suffer if we learn how to discipline attention skillfully, which is cultivating sati, highly worth and disciplined attention. If we have enough sati, we have enough disciplined attention, then when suffering arises, there's a possibility of inquiring into it. What's really going on here? Instead of the mind flying off and thinking about, he did this and she did that, and what about this and what about that? All the mental proliferation. So the second tool in our spiritual toolkit, discipline attention. And the third tremendously important tool that we need to get skilled in using is conscious caring, or metta. And caring is, is nutriment. And like children that are not cared for, they grow up deprived. And we need to be cared for. And conscious caring is a quality of heart, a quality of mind that, again, can be cultivated. The skill of intentionally caring can be cultivated. And everybody experiences disappointment and frustration and sadness and annoyance and if we're not really present for these difficulties in life they end up being stored up in unawareness and how do we protect ourselves from this happening and how do we address what is in fact a backlog of unacknowledged difficulty and how do we address it well conscious caring is one of the one of the skillful ways of doing that. If we really care for ourselves, it makes a big difference. If we don't care for ourselves, then it's like being a deprived, malnourished orphan. And so learning how to really exercise conscious caring as a skill, caring for ourselves, caring for others equally. Maybe we were brought up with the teaching that it's important to care about others and forget about ourselves. Well, that's not the way the Buddha taught. The Buddha pointed out that we need to also care for ourselves. And, and as much as we might enjoy having the company of, of good friends, the, the good friends are only around from time to time, like, like the pleasure of my good friend Ajahn Jayanto being here at the moment. But he only comes to visit about every five years, or maybe seven years. I don't know. That's not enough. <laughs> but that's not his problem. We can't depend on the kindness of other people. As children we do. As children we depend on the kindness of other people, the caring of other people. As adults, we need to learn to be our own best friend. Wherever we go, whatever's happening when you wake up in the morning, to remember to be your own best friend. And to keep yourself company with kindness. And then the next important tool in our spiritual toolkit in this work of transforming the deluded sense of self, the next important tool is conscious composure. Which again is not something that we generally hear about much in the world and, uh, and although it is very strongly encouraged by the Buddha, uh, Indriya Sangwara. learning how to inhibit the tendencies to always follow exuberance, seeing this, hearing that, tasting this, and, uh, 
smelling that. The sense objects are like specks of dust floating around in space. And if we're not careful, we can get this dust in our eyes and it blinds us. We get confused with so much dust around. In this life, and the life of a samana, we simplify it, we minimize the amount of dust that we're subjected to. And, and even then, there's still plenty of dust around to deal with it. We exercise this conscious composure. There's nothing to do with neurotic repression. Like, oh, I shouldn't think about enjoying eating this meal that's being offered today. Rather, it's do we have that strength? established whereby when there's delicious food in front of you you can feel like I want to eat this delicious food and yet you're still able to take just the right amount or do you take too much or do you say oh no I can't take it and then we don't take enough in the beginning we always tend to take too much or not take enough and that's how we start out but this is training and conscious composure this is a specific tool that we're learning to use, learning to inhibit the compulsive exuberance that is always going out following sense objects. And then the fifth of the five primary tools in our spiritual toolkit, which are an asset or, or I would say are essential to do this work of transforming the deluded sense of self, is wise reflection. Well, there's other skills as great as they are, if we don't know how to ask the right questions the right way and the right time, then there's a chance we're not going to be able to really undo the tangles of confusion that are established in our hearts and minds. So this willingness and ability, being willing and being able to ask the right questions, and sometimes the right questions are not very easy. We can have the conditioned ways of thinking, like as I was saying before, that it's somebody else's fault or the cause for our suffering is outside of ourselves. It's, it's my body, my body's not well, my, my body's got pain and, and my body does have pain, quite a bit of pain from time to time and, and I can be feeling that my body is the cause of my suffering. The body might be the trigger. However, that's not the cause of the suffering. Again, as I was saying, the Buddha had pain, the Buddha had arthritis, the Buddha had headaches. And, did the Buddha suffer? It's not the pain of the body. It's not the weather. If the Buddha was living in Northumberland, he wouldn't be complaining about the weather. Because the Buddha could tell the difference. He'd ask the question, the right question at the right time. What is the real cause of suffering? And that's what directs attention. See, what are we doing in the moment that is turning life into a problem. So these five tools in the spiritual toolkit the cultivation of integrity, cultivation of discipline, attention, and conscious kindness, conscious composure and wise reflection to remember these and to write them down so that if we're getting disoriented and this, this practice, this transformation of the deluded sense of self it's only going to happen if we're able to do this work, and we're only going to be able to do this work if we've got some skill in using the tool. So then the next thing to bear in mind, and 
transformation of the deluded sense of self, the next thing to bear in mind is that the translation of this teaching and this tradition. All of us here would be aware that this teaching, this tradition that we've inherited has come from Thailand, Southeast Asia, not just Thailand, it's also Burma and Laos and Cambodia and Sri Lanka, those places where Theravadan Buddhism has been established for many hundreds of years and we're extremely fortunate to have inherited these teachings. However, some of these traditions don't directly translate into this context and so sometimes some of the practices are different from what goes on out there. If we don't understand this, then some people might come to a look at our monastery here in Northumberland and say, how can you consider yourself a Theravadan meditation monk and you, you're living in lay people's houses? You know, monks are supposed to live in kutis. Well, the monks in Thailand live in kutis. That's true, but they don't have to heat them. We have to heat them, and heating 12 individual kutis can be quite difficult. Sometimes heating a couple of houses is is much more energy efficient and, and much more convenient. And, and also it happens to be that most of the monks in Thailand, they coming from a, a culture that is community-based, they really don't like living in kutis. They don't like living separate. They can't stand it. Westerners go to Thailand, oh, yeah, I don't have to see anybody, leave me alone. Great, give me a kuti. And they love it. Actually, living in a kuti in Thailand can be extremely frustrating for, for a Thai monk. Just as sometimes here in the situation we live in, living in these houses can be frustrating. However, that doesn't mean to say that it's not suitable training. So sometimes in this process of translation, it's important to check that although on the level of form, we don't look like a monastery from Thailand, what's important is that what we're doing is in accordance with the training or level of spirit. I was very pleased uh, a week or so ago when Ajahn Kirali, who you know was staying here for a month, and he was commenting about how different things were on the level of form, but on the level of spirit, he said, it's just the same thing. And what we're doing here, he's been the abbot of his monastery in the northeast of Thailand, observing a very strict traditional form, and, and he can come here and live in our monastery and settle in and be very comfortable. Even though the form has changed, the spirit is the same thing. So in this process of translating the tradition, it is important that we remind ourselves that on the level of form, sometimes things are not the same as they, they are in, in Thailand or Burma or Sri Lanka or Cambodia or Laos. What matters is the spirit. And the spirit is again that, as I was saying a minute ago, that transforming the deluded sense of self from being this contracted, painful experience into something that is beautiful and suitable. And then the third thing that I'd like to hold up on this occasion of Atanyu's taking the Papaja precepts and hopefully supporting him going forward in his training is, is the treasuring of what we've inherited. So transforming the deluded sense of self 
translating the tradition and treasuring this inheritance. If you look around at what's going on in the world, how many people have a teaching and an opportunity to practice a teaching that really makes sense to them, that they have real deep heartfelt confidence in and they want to commit themselves to? Very few. It's true that some people have belief systems that they hope are going to serve them well. However, what we've inherited is is a teaching and a tradition from beings who, who did the work and realized true benefit for themselves. It's not, it's not speculative. Our teachers, Ajahn Chah and, and the lineage of teachers that he came from in Thailand, they weren't speculating about the path of practice. They were speaking from a place of, of understanding of direct insight. However, they didn't reach that experience of direct insight just through reading a book or having a nice time. You read the, the biography of Ajahn Chah's life, or if you can speak Thai, you listen to him talking about his experiences as a young monk, and you realize how extremely difficult it was, the austerities that he put up with. Why did he put up with them? Not because he was a masochist, not at all. Rather, he was interested in seeing beyond the way suffering appears to be. Like he'd been a study monk for a number of years, and then when his father died, he was devastated. He realized that his practice and his study of Buddhism so far hadn't equipped him with the skill to deal with this normal event of his father dying. Everybody dies, it's guaranteed. And when his father died, he, he was deeply disturbed by it. And that was part of the motivation for his committing to look more deeply and commit himself more wholeheartedly to the path of practice, not just studying about Dhamma and reading books, practicing with the intention of realizing directly for himself. However, it did take its toll. It was he subjected himself to extreme austerities. And now, I'm not suggesting that all of us or any of us need to subject ourselves to the austerities that he did. However, we it's appropriate that we're we're grateful for for what he did. We're grateful for those who have gone before us. Many generations back, all the way back to the Buddha. If it wasn't for their commitment, we wouldn't have this. Somebody could come up with some great ideas, but oh, let's let's have a nice spiritual community on this lovely hill in Northumberland, and it wouldn't last. This monastery is not here, and all the other monasteries in the the family of Ajahn community are not established in the way they are because somebody had some good ideas. They're established because of the sincere commitment to practice by Ajahn Chah and the teachers and the lineage of which he's a part of. And also, the buildings, the place here, uh, although these days they're all very comfortable, and it wasn't always like that, although these days we spend time getting concerned about the, the skylights having a bit of moisture, they're a bit, getting a little bit old, and for many, many years, Ajahn Jayanti would remember, this was a building site. 
the first 10 years of my life here was a building site. In fact, that's, to be honest, that's one of the reasons why I used to run away for three months each year. I would go away to see my parents in New Zealand and visit Thailand maybe. And However, one of the main reasons for going away was because living on a building site was, wasn't particularly pleasant. Cement dust everywhere and, and this, this beautiful Dhamma Hall that we have now is very convenient, but believe me, it wasn't always like this and we didn't always have these lovely solid oak floorboards from Chitra's Forest with underfloor heating. We used to meet in what is now the reception room with, with one wood-burning stove. What was it called? The castle. That castle that we got. And so let's, all of us, not just Atanyu, but all of us remember that this opportunity to practice is only here because of the incredible sacrifices of many people that have gone before us and treasuring that not shaming ourselves or guilt-tripping ourselves, but reflecting on having an extraordinary good fortune to find ourselves in this situation. So, once again, as Samanera Atanyu embarks on this journey, uh, once again, I'm sure I speak on behalf of the community in saying that we wish you well. Ah. Uh-huh.